gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am extremely excited to have uh, today's guest on here. Uh, he's so sharp that you have to wear safety gloves when shaking his hand. Um, he is the head of the Critical Threats Project at AEI. He's one of the major uh, Brainiac guys with the Institute for Study of War. Uh, Fred Kagan, welcome back to uh, the Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. It's great to be back with you. I know more French phrases than I can I can pronounce comfortably, um, or unselfconsciously. But why don't we just sort of start big picture? We're closing out 2023, sort of a, a tour de horizon of America's national security global position, and um, will we be able to have nice things in 2024? Well, uh, just at the moment, Jonah, the trajectory is very bad. It, it's, it remains possible to defeat Russia uh, or to help the Ukrainians defeat Russia. The Israelis are dismantling Hamas, although in ways that are problematic and uh, the prospects there are not super. Uh, we could certainly take care, we, the United States, could certainly take care of the Houthis and keep the bubble and Strait open if we chose. But just at the moment, we are, as a country... Uh, seriously talking about just cutting off aid to Ukraine entirely, uh, which would be catastrophic for the United States uh, and, of course, for Ukraine. Uh, we're engaged in a series of discussions and pressuring tactics with the Israelis that are benefiting no one. Um, and we've taken an amazingly passive position as the Houthis have closed one of the critical uh, maritime choke points in the world. All of this is reversible if, um, well, most of it is reversible if Congress passes aid uh, to uh, Israel and Ukraine along with the border security, then the Ukrainians would be able to figure out what they're going to do in 2024. And I think there's prospect for um, for progress there. Um, if if we are serious about uh, reopening the Babel Mendeb Strait, we certainly can. As always, the problem of figuring out what an end state is in the Palestinian territories is uh, incredibly, incredibly difficult, and the Israelis are struggling to uh, to think through what an end state in all of their conflicts would actually be. But in general terms, things right the trajectory right now is very bad. But there's no there's no reason why it should stay that way if uh, American leaders make sound decisions. So, um, just because I think it's always good, I don't want to go full Pudhoritz and have you explain basic words. But um, the Bab al-Mandeb Strait uh, in the Red Sea, why don't we just sort of start with there? Because this, this is one of the things, it's really kind of wild how it's, ex, ex, probably the wrong choice of words, exploded in our consciousness to a certain extent. I've been following it a little bit with the Houthis and all the rest. But all of a sudden, there's a very strong case that we would not have a U.S. constitution at all were it not for the need to create a Navy to deal with <laughs> problems in this part of the world um, to over two centuries ago, right? Because that, that we, we couldn't raise the Confederate Articles of Confederation didn't have a way of paying for a Navy to deal with the Barbary Pirates. And we're back to like one of these really basic American foreign policy one-on-one issues, which is protecting shipping in general, but really our ships. 
um, from bad actors. And so it's, it's, it's kind of nice in the back to basics kind of way. It's just that we're failing it. So why don't you, why don't we start there? Yeah. No, yeah. So the easy thing is, you know, I, your, your listeners will remember when that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, uh, the ever given, um, and disrupted global trade, uh, for weeks at a huge cost. Um, and ships got backed up and then everybody had to start sailing around Africa and people didn't get their stuff, which is what a lot of people noticed, but the global economy was actually kind of disrupted. Um, so the, the body of water, the Red Sea is a body of water that has two choke points, one on either end. The Suez Canal is the one on the northern end and the Bobble Mendeb Strait is the one on the southern end. All the ships that go through the Suez Canal that aren't going to ports on the Red Sea have to come out the Bablam and Strait and uh, vice versa. So basically what the Al-Houthis have done using a small number of drones and missiles is achieve an effect on global shipping that is approaching the effect that was created when a huge freighter got stuck in the Suez Canal and closed the whole thing down. Um, that's what's going on right now. And it's a big deal. It has impacts on average Americans. One of the first things that happens and has happened is when ships come under regular attack, insurance companies raise their rates on shipping through that area. Those rates are levied on the shipping companies who pass them on ultimately to consumers. Very few people understand the, the dynamics of the international shipping insurance business. I certainly don't, uh, but I understand that it's incredibly important in shaping uh, how shipping companies move stuff around and ultimately important in shaping consumer prices. So that's that's a first thing that happened. And that's likely to be a, a not a short-term effect. I think it's, especially the way that we, the United States, are approaching this, I'm not sure how rapidly we'll see those rates come down, um, assuming that we we get the ships moving through the straits again. But absent that, you know, the rates are high. Shipping companies don't want their ships attacked, so they don't go through the, the Red Sea. So then they have to sail around Africa, which adds a lot of travel time, which again, adds cost. So all of this ultimately uh, hits American consumers. Now, it had a lot of other dramatic impacts also in the region. Egypt is very dependent on the money that it makes uh, charging ships, basically tolls to go through the Suez Canal. Well, if no ships are going through the Bobble Mendeb Strait, then very few ships are going through the Suez Canal and the Egyptians are going to get hurt very badly. That will generate regional effects. And if it goes on long enough, can generate instability in Egypt, which is, of course, you know, one of the last things in the world that we need um, at this point. So this is, you know, this is a very big deal. And it's important to understand that the Houthis have generated this effect, again, with a, a relatively small number of drones and missiles. Let me just say that the the military task of taking out the Houthis' ability to threaten shipping is not a massive undertaking for the United States Navy and Air Force. It is remarkable how reluctant the Biden administration has been to take a more straightforward approach to what is, after all, a basically massive uh, series of pirate attacks that the Houthis are conducting, which, as you say, was the reason why we have a standing navy was to deal with pirates, um, and we're 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 being incredibly reticent to deal with that. And this is the thing that's really alarming me about this, though, Jonah, because I I mean we'll, I, we'll get this under control. We can open the strait. The you know it's a, just a question of how long it takes to 
harness the will and the chi and stuff to do it. But we'll get this straight open. The Houthis can't close it. But do you think the Chinese are taking notes? Because I, I kind of think they are. And I think that they're they're noticing that our continued self-deterrence uh, out of fear of some kind of escalation gives predators a lot of room to generate significant disruptions before things rise to the level where we decide that we have to get over our self-deterrence. That's that's a very alarming precedent to set. So first of all, just as part of the level setting, I, mean, I think you'd agree that basically the Houthis wouldn't be doing this without Iran's say-so, right? Absolutely right. What do you think this, and I know you don't like to get into the political punditry aspects of a lot of things, so you can be diplomatic or just bat it down, but I've heard a bunch of different explanations for why Biden, the Biden administration is reluctant to do it. Some, and, and they're not mutually exclusive, right? I mean, we know that the Biden that Biden doesn't, is kind of dovish, right? We, we've known that for a very long time. He's suspicious of the military. He doesn't like quagmires. He has a lot of Vietnam syndrome stuff in his head. He also can have, he can be stubborn. He gets some idea fixé about some past argument, which is, I think, what explains his pullout from Afghanistan. But um, so, but one of the arguments is they are afraid of escalation with Iran. Another of the arguments is they laid down these markers about Saudi Arabia being needing to be a pariah and a bad guy, and they don't want to basically take the Saudi position vis-a-vis the Houthis, um, which would be really outrageous if it was true. <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't know that it's true. You do hear it. I get that we should do something about the Houthis, but at the end of the day, it seems to me the deterrence here is really about deterring Iran, right? Because Iran has these other avenues that it can pull with Hezbollah, with Hamas, with all these other sort of groups. What should we be doing to actually deter not just the specific Houthi stuff, but this whole sort of plan, you know, poking at us um, in the region? Let me approach that in, in two parts. Let me start with where you ended. We need to understand that the return address for a lot of the things that are going on in the Middle East right now is Tehran. What the Houthis are doing, and this is something that we've argued in the in the updates that we uh, have been running on a daily basis about the Hamas-Gaza war, which also includes all of the Iranian activities in the region, you know, the Iranians have been threatening and claiming the ability to threaten for many years the uh, ability to close the Strait of Hormuz and also to interfere with the Bab al-Mandeb Strait and transit through the through the Red Sea via the Houthi proxies. This isn't the first, first time that the Houthis have attacked ships transiting the strait. So one of the many things that's going on here is that under the guise of acting prompted by the uh, Israel-Hamas war, the Iranian-led axis of resistance, of which the Houthis are a part, is demonstrating its ability to interfere with traffic through the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is an important part of the Iranian regional strategy to tell us that they can hurt us very badly uh, if we do anything to them. This this is a part of an Iranian program, and the objective of that program is to expel us from the region, as well as to destroy Israel. One of the problems that we're all collectively having, I think, is that too many people are accepting the narrative about why the Houthis are doing what they're doing. And their narrative is that this is somehow related to Gaza. In fact, that is an excuse and a justification because what they're doing is demonstrating and testing a capability that they and the Iranians have claimed to have for a long time, having nothing to do with Gaza. So that's, that's an important thing that we need actually to keep in mind. Now, I'm never, I'm never interested in psychoanalyzing 
you know, presidents or anybody else. So I'm not going to chase into all of the various reasons why Biden specifically might be making this decision or that. Whenever people do things that I think are not the right thing, there's always a reasonable explanation or almost always a reasonable explanation. And sometimes they're right. So I think we can identify a couple of reasonable counter arguments to what I would what I would want us to be doing. Um, and the first is that there is a peace agreement in place uh, between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis that the Saudis really, really want. And the Saudis do not want us to be going after the Houthis very heavily right now because the Saudis do not want to have that peace agreement or that, that sort of ceasefire where whatever the for- current status is disrupted uh, by having another war break out in Yemen. So actually, we're not sort of screwing the Saudis by holding back. We're, we're doing, I think, more or less what the Saudis want us to do um, by trying not to blow up the, the peace deal that the Saudis hope will let them pull themselves out of Yemen entirely. And we want them to pull out of Yemen too. So that's, you know, that, that's a reasonable argument for not escalating here. And then there's the persistent driving fear of this administration about escalation of any variety. And anytime they see the danger of escalation in any theater, it can freeze their thinking. That's not crazy. That's not a crazy way to think. Escalation is a very serious problem. And a war with Iran and its proxies for the United States would be a major undertaking. And the outcome is not clear. And we are not in a good position militarily to undertake it. And I doubt that we have coherent and cogent plans for what we would do in it, and so on and so on. So I think it's important not to, you know, dismiss and poo-poo the, the risks of escalation and regional conflict. And I think that that those two factors are probably driving the policy discussion in the administration more than anything else. And they're not, they're not unreasonable, and they may even be right. Um, it's just not it's not the view that I take. It's not the approach to policy that I take. So I, I don't agree with it. But I, I don't think that you have to reach for irrational explanations to to explain what the you know what's going on here. It'd be an interesting conversation to delve into in, in another in other contexts. Um, just one last thing on the on the on the straight. I get and I agree with your point about that. This is an important way for it's a it's a, a demonstration effect about what's at stake for the U.S. and all that. I get that. At the same time, it does seem to me that there's got to be some sort of limit to how far this will go, given that as much as we depend on trade through there, so does China, right? I mean, so does so do a lot of people on the other side of, you know, on the axis of a-holes on the other side of all of this. And, um... China's economy, as, as, as much as we're cl- pulling out economically here um, from some doldrums, China's economy is a little scarier. And, and you would just think that, that, that at some point, maybe even, I mean, Russia is a harder case for me to understand how much it's depending on, on shipping lanes right now through that area. <laughs> but uh, at some point, you could say, say China said, okay, you made your point let's cool it? Or is that just the wrong way to think about it? Look, I think it's easy to overstate that the the influence that China has on Iran in a very complicated situation here. I, I don't think that China is in a position to give orders to Iran. And keep in mind that this is the Iranians are doing all of this with a fair degree of misdirection. So the Chinese would need to be pounding on the door in Tehran and saying, you need to tell the Houthis to knock this off. 
the Iranians are old pros at this. So the first part of their conversation is, hey, we don't tell the Houthis what to do. They're, they're you know, they're, they're defending Gaza. Um, so then the Chinese get into a big, big argument about that. But ultimately, what do the Chinese put on the table? They say, okay, we're going to blow up all our economic relations with you because that's the only threat that they have. Well, that harms China too. Even if the Chinese were sort of activists and if they were thinking sort of responsibly about how they want the world to work, and there's, there's not a lot of evidence for either one of those, it's not at all clear to me that this is a good cost benefit for them. And it's really not clear to me that they could actually meaningfully tell the Iranians what to do anyway. Okay. So let's move over nearby. Um, how do you think the Israel Hamas war is going right now? And if you want to work it in, how much, I mean, cause you guys, you study this stuff with granular detail. Um, I have no doubt that there are a lot of Palestinian civilians who've been killed. I, I know, and and you know, a lot is a very loose term, but it's a lot, right? And um, but I really just I, I I I do not believe, and I do not see any reason to believe the Hamas numbers about any of this stuff. Is there any better data collection? Do the Israelis have a better number? Do you guys have a better guess? Or should we just, I mean, look, when it's very weird how the number is always two thirds women and children, right? Um, and anyway, so how's it all going? And also just as an epistemological matter, like how do we, how should we be thinking about some of those numbers? Well, look, I mean, I, I've, I've watched a lot of wars uh, from various vantage points. And the one thing that I'm confident of is that any, nobody ever has precise numbers for total killed and wounded, and especially when you're dealing with irregular forces um, operating bl- that blend into the population the way Hamas and other organizations that we have fought do, distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants is a non-trivial undertaking. Um, so I don't, I don't try to uh, calculate numbers, and I don't look for those databases because I just don't look, even in the conventional conflict that Ukraine and Russia are fighting. I, I take all of the numbers that were being presented by all sides with a large grain of salt. It's just really, really hard in war to know. You are saying something which is important, which I think has been being not adequately discussed in the media, which is that the numbers that we are being provided by Gaza officials are numbers that are being provided by Hamas officials because Hamas is the effective government of Gaza. And that includes the uh, Ministry of Health and that includes the subordinate. Uh, hospital directorships and so forth. So we're, we have Hamas numbers for these casualties, which I believe the UN has chosen to accept. And I think the US has chosen to accept as accurate numbers. I'm sure they're not right in the sense that all of these numbers are not right. Uh, look, I'm, I'm, I am very prepared to believe that they're not off by orders of magnitude. Looking at the bombing campaign, looking at the house-to-house fighting, looking at the way this war has been fought, I would expect that there have been many thousands and possibly tens of thousands of people killed in this. The Israelis claim to have taken seven or 8,000 fighters off the battlefield. I have no way of assessing that independently. It's not implausible as we have looked at the Hamas order of battle, um, which we published uh, part of and we'll publish the rest of hopefully soon. 
and you look at the number of battalions that the Israeli forces have likely destroyed uh, or badly damaged and what the complement of a battalion is, um, and we look at the way the Israelis have been doing their fighting, it's not implausible that they've taken that many fighters off the battlefield. So you can subtract that number from the total number that's being provided here. The Israelis have also spoken about what they think the ratio of uh, fighters killed to um, civilians is. It's a high ratio of civilians killed. And I think, you know, one of the problems that I and others who've, who are in the U.S. military or who have spent a lot of time in the U.S. military have is that the Israelis are prepared to take much higher level or to inflict much higher levels of collateral uh, damage uh, in order to minimize their own casualties and risk of casualties in U.S. forces are. Um, and that is that is generating higher ratios of, of civilian casualties to fighters killed in this war than you would normally see in the in the sort of post surge counterinsurgency approaches that we took. And it's, you know, it's more than I myself am comfortable with. And it's more than a lot of people are comfortable with. But if you're talking about are there 22,000, you know, dead Gazans who are all civilians and two thirds of them are women and children, that's not plausible. So it's interesting that you say that, you know, one of the arguments that you'll hear, um, I'm sure you've heard, um, is that we're asking Israel to fight more restrained than we ourselves would fight. You're saying that's not necessarily true. Compare for me just like the difference in how Israel is fighting in, in Gaza to how we fought in, say, Fallujah. Well, first of all, I'm not especially prepared to defend Fallujah as a paradigm for successful counterinsurgency fair we you know we fought in a variety of ways over the course of the iraq and afghan wars um in some respects for me the more apposite experience was the shift from the uh, pre-2009 approach that we were taking in afghanistan to the mccrystal approach in afghanistan because before 2009 we were dropping an awful lot of bombs on a lot of targets because we had very few forces in Afghanistan and we were very prioritized we were very much prioritizing force protection and this is a, this is the trade-off that you have in war that the you know when you have air power and the enemy can't challenge it it's easier to end fights with bombs than it is to get you know force your own guys to close with and destroy the enemy uh, you, you take more casualties that way um, if you you know what we what we Americans realized is that in 2006, seven in Iraq, and then 2009 in Afghanistan, was that that approach was losing us the war because we were engaged in a counterinsurgency and we were, we were putting more insurgents on the battlefield with that approach than we were taking off. So we made the conscious decision to adjust our approach, which implied being willing to accept more casualties in order to achieve the mission. Uh, and, and we did. We did both. We we initially took more casualties, and then we also were more successful as counterinsurgents at both of those uh, theaters because we became very attuned to civilian casualties. The Israeli approach is designed to minimize IDF casualties. Now, and here, look, I mean, I think Israel isn't the United States, right? We have a population of 330 million people. We have, you know, the largest and most effective army in the world at the time. Israel is a very, very small state. Uh, the IDF is not you know, sort of set up emotionally, constitutionally, or in any other way to take a lot of casualties. This is the way that they're trained to fight. And they're not really fighting a counterinsurgency here. They're they're trying to dismantle an organization that is the de facto government of the Strip. And it's that organization is fighting in an irregular way, but it's not yet an insurgency. 
because that organization is fighting what is for it a conventional war. It's, you know, it's a very complicated discussion here. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that we're trying to get the Israelis to fight in a way that's more restrained than the way that we fight. I think in general terms, from what's making it to the press, we're trying to get them to fight more the way we do fight, but, or the more the way we did fight recently. But, and I myself am more comfortable with that approach. Um, and I would like to see in Prince, I would like to see the Israelis be in a more sort of counterinsurgency mindset, recognizing a lot of complexities here, because if they want as they say, and as I think is necessary, to have a government in Gaza that is not a Hamas-run government, at a certain point, all of these operations are going to have to shift to creating space for and building support for a non-Hamas government there. And I don't see the approach that they're engaged in right now leading in that direction. But I also understand the factors and the arguments that are leading them to fight the way that they're fighting. So, um, I wasn't going to dwell on this, but just it's interesting you're taking this sort of very Kagan-esque counter counter most narratives uh, approach to some of these questions. So I'm just kind of curious now. The two other claims that you hear from critics of Israel, right, um, is that the bombing is indiscriminate and that um, it's genocidal. Right. Or that, or, or, or put it this way, because I think the genocidal thing is just simply species. Uh, but um, uh, that Israel is violating the rules of war. I'm curious, are there aspects of Israel's conduct that you think do, in fact, violate either the rules of war or the spirit of the rules of war? And also, how frustrating is it f- for you? Because it's very frustrating for me. I'll just, you know, put my priors down to have that conversation with people who want to hold Israel to a standard that they have no desire because they read too much Franz Fanon in college to hold Hamas to. Because by design, Hamas is not following the rules of war. If Israel crosses a line, it's sort of by accident or through, you know, whatever. Anyway, how do you, how do you respond to those, that hodgepodge of of claims? Right. So you can't really talk sensibly about Hamas committing war crimes because Hamas, virtually everything that Hamas is doing is technically a war crime because Hamas is fighting as a series of illegal combatants um, and is, you know, by design using human shields and doing a whole, so the, the entire sort of Hamas military operation is illegal in violation of the laws of armed conflict to begin with. It's honestly one of the reasons why I'm, I, I, I don't even know what to say. The whole the whole thing that whole, the whole thing is sort of illegal from start to finish from that standpoint. And you can list every specific thing that they do, but that's that's sort of the frame on Hamas, which was true of Al Qaeda in Iraq, which was true of the Taliban, which is you know true of most of our enemies. Right. Sort of like talking about the mafia as if oh they broke the law there. No, that whole point of the mafia the whole is, point is, is yeah, right. Yeah. It's a criminal organization, so it's all right. So that you know that framing is important. Now, look, that having been said, we held ourselves to a higher standard than Al Qaeda in Iraq and ISIS and so forth, and it's we do hold our allies to higher standards, and I think that's important. And the Israelis hold themselves to a higher standard. The Israelis are not taking the formal position that they can do whatever they want, and they are. Uh, saying that they are adhering to the law of armed conflict. So, you know, they themselves are holding themselves to a higher standard than uh, Hamas. So I don't think that it's, I think that it's important that we all hold each other to the the standards of the international agreements and international laws that we've signed up to. 
uh, and that we fight our wars accordingly. I think that that's very important. The, the, the problem is that the standards for what is permissible under the law of armed conflict are not what most people think they are. There are a lot of people who have opinions about what they should be. The, the standards themselves are complicated and permit a much higher degree of violence and, and collateral damage and civilian death than most people understand or would be comfortable with. So it's actually, if you want to ascertain whether a given activity was, was or was not a violation of the law of armed conflict, it's not enough to, to have a picture of a blown up apartment building and say, well, that, that was clearly a violation of, of international law. You, need, you would need to know a lot of things that are generally not knowable right now. What was the intended target? The, the whole discussion about proportionality requires understanding what the intended target of the operation was and what the likely effect of uh, hitting that target would be on the military operation. The Israelis are not telling us in real time uh, for understandable reasons. So without knowing that, I can't evaluate whether or not the Israelis are are or are not, you know, violating the law of armed conflict. There are other standards here. Um, if you want to get international tribunals involved, you know, war crimes occur in every major conflict. The requirement on states combatant is to punish war crimes that their personnel commit. The, the, the time when you have international organizations stepping in is when you have states not punishing or either war, ordering war crimes to be committed or not punishing uh, war crimes that are being committed at a sufficient scale that it is appropriate for the international community to step in. I don't know what the Israelis are doing. I don't know what orders are being given, and I don't know who is being held account to account for what. And so in that circumstance, I myself am not in a position to evaluate these, uh, these charges. Indiscriminate bombing is a war crime. But you can't demonstrate whether the bombing is or is not discriminate without understanding what the targets that they're aiming at are and what their capability is to hit those targets with what degree of precision. Um, so it's the, the, the point is, I'm horrified by what's going on. I think it's not possible to look at what's going on and be other than horrified by it. And I'm not okay personally with the degree of civilian casualties that are uh, being inflicted in, in Gaza. Of course, I, I also have to say I was not in any slightest way okay with the degree of civilian casualties that Hamas inflicted on Israel in the October 7th attack that began this war. But I'm not okay with the, with the degree of civilian destruction that's going on in Gaza. And it's easy for me to say, but if I were running this war, I would run it in a different way. But I'm not Israel and, and so forth. But having said that, to make the next step and say, looking at these pictures makes them ipso facto war crimes, that's, that's actually not the way the law of armed conflict works. No, I mean, and I, I think this is one of the real frustrations is Hamas, other than being a terrorist organization and all that, its structure is so designed for the international communications, PR, propaganda kind of thing. And so they rely to a high degree on the fact that a lot of people think they know what the laws of war are. And so all they need is a picture of a shell that hit a hospital and they say, see, Israel's bombing hospitals. When the laws of war say that you can't use a hospital as a place to, to store troops, ammo, fight from, because that then it becomes a legitimate target. 
and that that level of ignorance and, and sometimes willful ignorance, I think, from some of the press um, to sort of help with those narratives is one of weirdly one of Hamas's asymmetric advantages, right? Um, it's it's I see it a little bit like with with Donald Trump is that you know as an analogy is like Donald Trump. I don't think he's a particularly brilliant guy or anything like that, but when you have voters and 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 proxies willing to shape whatever your behavior is to make it palatable to your own side and to 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 spin it you can get away with a lot of things and Hamas can get away with a lot of things that if there were a symmetrical disregard for laws of war or basic human de- decency from both sides Israel would be toast whereas Hamas is just this authentic voice of a resistance movement kind of thing well, look, I mean, there's a lot of complexity there, which which I'm not going to get into and, and unpack. The The information space is is shaped in a particular way, and Hamas has been very skillful at taking advantage of that. And the they're taking advantage of the fact that the law of armed conflict is tricky. And there's a lot of judgment to be made here. Um, yes, it is a fact that if one combatant uses a protected uh, location such as a hospital as a military position, it loses its protected status. It it doesn't follow that the other combatant should attack that facility in any particular way, right? So sure, I agree with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so you so the problem is that you you would then back down to the same basic problem, which is that in a war as it is occurring, when both sides are trying to conceal. Their, the, their full activities and especially the intentions of their activities and their capabilities, the Israelis are not really, you know, able to put out exactly what it is that they were going after. And so we can't really have the evaluation of proportionality in any given situation, which is essential to evaluating, uh, you know, meeting, you know, meeting various thresholds and standards under the law of armed conflict. And Hamas takes advantage of that. And the images are terrible. And Look, Jonah, I I want America's allies to win. I want Israel to win. And I, Hamas began this with a horrific attack that was intended in, in no small part to cause exactly the operation that the Israelis are currently conducting. I and I'm not I'm not confused or ambivalent about that. But I'm not okay with the way that the Israelis are doing this. And I, and the reason that one of the reasons I'm not okay with it is because all of this is predictable. Every aspect of this is predictable. There's nothing surprising to me here in the way uh, people are reacting to the kinds of images that are inevitable when you fight a war this way. And Israel is suffering horrific damage in its relationships and in global opinion and American opinion and so forth. And that that is a real threat to Israel. Um, and I think, you know, stepping back from all of this, I think the Israelis... Let's just talk for a second about the threats that the Israelis actually face here, can we? Because I think that's very important to understand all of the decisions that are being made. Hamas itself doesn't obviously doesn't pose an existential threat to Israel. Hezbollah is a is a different story potentially, but Hamas does not pose an existential threat to Israel militarily. But the Israeli leaders and people have made a very strong argument that Israel can only exist as Israel if Israelis feel safe. And this has always been the struggle that Israel has over its decades of periodic attacks by Arab states uh, that threatened its existence. So 
the fear so there so Israeli leaders are reacting to an existential fear that if Hamas and the and Hezbollah and other organizations can create a pervasive sense of insecurity and fear in Israel that is people will just leave that you'll have a flight from Israel and the state will collapse and Israel will ultimately be destroyed in that way and Iranians also talk about trying to achieve this this precise effect that is that is i think the primary existential threat that the Israeli leaders are reacting to right now and it's not trivial and it is in fact part of the strategy of their enemies to achieve that effect so i think we need to understand that but there are other existential requirements that israel has and one is it has a requirement for the strong support of the united states and for the toleration of the international community which is which is all that it has historically had and that is being put at greater threat than it has been in my in anything that i can remember Mm-hmm. My concern is that, the, or one of my concerns is that the way that the Israelis are conducting this operation is intended to defend against one existential threat, but is increasing another existential threat. For sort of Israeli self-interested reasons, therefore, I'm I'm worried about what the effects of all of this can be, separate and apart from how I feel about what is actually going on in in Gaza. Uh, that's it's it's a very useful corrective, um, and I'm going to reserve my right to return to it in the near or distant future. But uh, I do want to get to Ukraine because I don't want to keep you too long. We already alluded to it in the beginning. Uh, Republicans are behaving like jackasses vis-a-vis Ukraine. My words, not yours. So you don't have to characterize that. No comment. Yes, I understand. Particularly frustrating given how many of them probably know better, but feel like they have to take the position that they're giving, they're taking. You know, one of the talking points you hear all the time from critics of supporting Ukraine is, is that the Europeans need to step up. But my understanding is that the Europeans now have their contributions are greater than our contributions. And that doesn't even take into account expensive but sort of hard to calculate cost of all the refugees that places like Germany and Poland have taken from Ukraine, um, which, you know, you would think a lot of Republicans would understand the politics of taking large numbers of refugees can be sometimes politically more more politically expensive than than economically expensive. Anyway, what are the real stakes involved if U.S. does not give? I mean, I can put on my punditry hat and tell you I think they're going to get one more package of aid. But if they don't get aid, what are the stakes for Ukraine? What are the stakes for U.S. national security? If we cut the Ukrainians off cold. The Russians will eventually win. And when you say win, just so I understand, win, do you mean keep what they have or actually take Kiev and the whole country? I think they will eventually take Kiev and the whole country. I think they will then face a horrific insurgency. I don't think that Ukrainians will go down easily. Uh, Ukrainians are an extremely brave uh, and resourceful and valiant people. And they will fight as hard as they can for as long as they can. And when they can't fight conventionally anymore, I think that they'll fight as insurgents. But at the end of the day, here's the thing, Jonah, we can talk about people stepping up. There's only one country in the collective West that actually has the capability to give Ukraine what it needs to fight. And that's us. There isn't another country. Mm -hmm. We still are the closest thing to an arsenal of democracy out there. There aren't that many Leopard 2s in the world. There aren't that many Gripen fighters. If the Ukrainians are going to have tanks to fight, they're going to have to have our tanks. Mm-hmm. If they're going to have combat aircraft, they're going to have to, it's going to be our aircraft. We're the only country in the world that has enough of these things. That is not the enemy. So this is part of the problem with the discussion about people need to step up. If we're talking about financial aid, sure, fine. If we're talking about actually providing military systems, we're we're it. 
we're the only game in town at the end of the day. Um, that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. So if we deprive the Ukrainians of the means to fight mechanized warfare, eventually they will lose in mechanized warfare. And the Russians, one of the things that we've been tracking very closely with my colleagues at the Institute for the Study of War is the Russian war aims, stated war aims, are expanding as they feel like they are getting closer to victory. And sort of the mask is is coming off and the Russians are making clear what we've always assessed, which is that the objective was never to have just parts of the East. The objective was to fully control Kiev. Now, last night, yesterday, we reported out Putin is talking about how to partition Ukraine. Uh, and he's actually sort of casting himself back in the role of Catherine the Great, uh, who partitioned Poland. And he's talking about how Poland should get the western part of Ukraine and Russia should get the eastern part. And then maybe there can be this rump Ukraine. But, he's, you know, this is all about the complete destruction of Ukraine. Keeping in mind that his project is the complete destruction of Ukraine, whose statehood, ethnicity, identity, language and so forth, he absolutely rejects. So Ukrainian defeat means no more Ukraine. Now, we, we published a product a few days ago showing what a relatively conservative Russian deployment on the western borders of Ukraine could look like after a full Russian uh, victory in Ukraine. It would pose a very serious challenge to the task of defending our Eastern European NATO allies. And meeting that challenge would require the deployment of large numbers of American troops back to Europe. And more importantly, in some respects, it would require the deployment of American stealth aircraft into Europe because the Russians have air defense systems that are robust enough, given the way we fight, that our method for dealing with them would rely heavily on stealth aircraft penetrating. And that's a problem because that gets us into a one-for-one trade-off between what we have to deter and potentially fight China and what we have to keep in Europe in order to deter and potentially fight Russia. We already obviously have some of this problem, but actually our our security world in Europe is transformed radically and for the bad if the Russians actually defeat Ukraine and are able to begin stationing forces on the borders of Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and Romania, and all of Poland now, not just the parts of Poland that they can currently threaten. That, Jonah, is a vast cost that we would incur over as long as this Cold War hopefully continues. The people who are, and look, I mean, I want to say again, I I I always think it's important to recognize, you know, just because other people disagree with me doesn't mean that they're wrong or stupid. There there are, you know, there are, well, we, we have provided a lot of money for Ukraine's use. We've actually not given Ukraine that much money. As you know, you know, most of the military aid money is actually going to Americans. Uh, as there's Mark no T- blank as check Thiessen. of any kind. No, there's never right? been a blank check. Yeah. You know, the military assistance, as Mark Thiessen has laid out, is overwhelmingly going to Americans um, to, to backfill equipment that we're giving to Ukraine. So that, that's important. But it's a lot of money. And it's not unreasonable for Americans and their representatives to say, you know, should we be spending this much money on this cause? And one of the reasons why we put our, our piece out was to say, well, talk about long-term versus short-term cost here and talk about what the total cost would be of the military posture that would like to be required of the United States to defend its NATO allies if we let the Russians win in Ukraine compared to the cost of helping the Ukrainians either hold the lines as they are or ideally win. And there can be no question that it, it would be much more expensive over the long term to cut the aid now and allow the Russians to win. 
I want to say one last thing here because I think this is also important. The NATO border is not some kind of magic curtain. I think there are people who are saying to themselves, not necessarily out loud, you know, look, we can cut Ukraine off and let the Russians defeat it. And then Putin will still understand that, you know, we'll defend NATO. So, we're, you know, we're not, we don't really need to do this stuff because that's, that's NATO and he'll know that we'll come in. So, so you know, this, we're exaggerating what the cost of deterrence is going to be. And to people who say after we abandoned Afghanistan and gave it back to the Taliban, if we then abandon Ukraine and allow the Russians to defeat it after having committed to defend it, we then say to Putin, but if you cross this line, we for sure will fight because that's NATO. There's reason to think that he's going to say, will you? I'm not so sure. If I start nipping pieces out of Estonia, what are you going to do? I th- you know, we, we tell ourselves that all these things are partable. That we, you know, we can do this here, but we'll tell them there that this has nothing to do with them. That is, isn't the way the world works. If we abandon Ukraine now and allow the Russians to defeat it, that will be the second partner that we have fully abandoned and allowed to be defeated by our enemies. You keep doing that and you, you basically destroy the credibility of all of your alliances. And then you get into a situation where you're much more likely to have to fight to show that you're willing to defend your alliances than to have the alliances stand for themselves and deter, which is what their purpose actually is. No, I, I think that's a really great point, and it doesn't even factor in all the rhetoric that you get from certain quarters of the right about how NATO is is anachronistic. And I mean, Newt Gingrich, who helped bring the Baltics into NATO, was saying we never should have put these places that are basically the suburbs of St. Petersburg in a NATO in the first place, all because of the distorting effects. I know you don't like, you winced when I used a uh, barnyard epithet about some of, uh, um, the, the, about describing the behavior of some Republicans. And, I, and so I won't do it again because I know you got to have to actually try and brief these people. I will say, and you can just say no well, comment I'll, if you well, like. Jo- hey, Jonah, listen, this, these arguments are not confined to Republicans. Oh, I agree. I know. I know. And then the the support among Democrats eroding our colleague Daniel Pletko was making this point recently is something else to be really concerned with. I will say, though, that like I think and this is what you can just say no comment to if you want or you can come at me guns a blazing. Um, I think part of the problem that you're struggling with is that you're a very serious person who actually cares about facts and data and reality and realpolitik and all of these sorts of things. And not just vis-a-vis Ukraine or Israel or anything, but across the spectrum, we are not in a moment where actual issues and policies and facts matter as much as they should in our politics. Everything is about signaling. Everything is about sort of culture war this and 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 uh, anti-anti that. The Republicans I talk to who are skeptical publicly about aid to Ukraine. It's very, to me, it, the, my problem with it is you're making an, I, I agree with you entirely that you shouldn't assume that just because someone disagrees with you, that means they're wrong or stupid or bad. I do think that you can make more invidious assumptions about people when they argue in bad faith. And there is a lot of bad faith on the left and the right these days about a wide variety of issues. And one of them happens to be Ukraine. <laughs> and, um, and that's very frustrating because I think this is actually a you know, wildly serious thing that we're dealing with that will have long-term repercussions for the United States and for our, our status in the world and for our allies. 
And people just aren't taking it very seriously because it's all signaling and vapor. And that's the thing that I, I, I'm referring to, you know, but you may see it differently. Look, I'm, I mean, I, sure, I can't, I can't disagree with that. That's, that's certainly going on. I've, I viewed this through a couple of different prisms. Um, I can't, you know, and part of it is I can't do anything about that. No, you're a stay in your lane guy, which I appreciate, you know, it's, it, there are very few of them, you know. Well, okay, but it's also, I mean, if there were a straightforward solution to that problem, which a lot of people are seeing as a problem, then somebody would have solved it. So I, I have to accept that I try to accept the world as it is instead of um, wishing for it to be something else. I'm very alive to information operations in the shape of the information space. And what I see is that, because that smoke and vapor doesn't come out of nowhere. And what I see is that the Russians have been running very, very effective information operations, long, long-term and short-term, to shape the informational discussion in the United States, on the one hand. And on the other hand, a lot of that smoke and vapor, I think, actually conceals very fundamental, it doesn't always conceal, but sometimes conceals very fundamental disagreements about what America is and what America should be and what our role in the world should be and how we should view the world. And when you peel apart some of those arguments, you get to some very outright explicit isolationism. That's that's a dirty word now. Very few people want to be called isolationists. So a lot of the smoke and vapor that you're talking about, I think, is part of an effort to spin isolationism as something other than what it is. Now, isolationism itself is a serious argument. I I I think that it's incumbent on those of us who think that America it's important for America to be engaged in the world to be able to defend that premise against people who say that we shouldn't. I think what you're getting to is that we're not really able to have that argument quite straight on because it is being couched and obfuscated in a lot of ways. And also because, you know, listen, a lot of people who are making arguments about why America should be engaged in the world are not making arguments that are resonant with the audiences who need to hear it. Going to people who come from certain parts of the political spectrum and talking about the rules-based international order makes their eyes glaze over or worse. So look, Jonah, I'm going to tell you what I think the problem, basic problem in America is right now. I'm going to step out of my lane too with the basic problem in America is right now. <laughs> too many people in this country on all sides, because there aren't two sides anymore, but too many people in this country on all sides have lost sight of the fact that in a democracy, at the end of the day, if you want, if you don't have majority opinion on your side and you don't have majority representation on your side, you have to persuade people who don't agree with you to do what you want. And the least effective way of persuading people who don't agree with you is to say that they're stupid or evil. And the problem is that we are in such a toxic moment of our discourse that the default response that a lot of people have to those who disagree with them is to say they're stupid or evil and then sort of try to persuade them in some way. And I think what we all need to do, and this is why I try to do this myself, is to say, look, most Americans are neither stupid nor evil. Sorry, I just, I, I don't accept the premise that large numbers of Americans are stupid or evil. I think we have serious disagreements in this country. I think various people make serious arguments one way or another. Naturally, I think my arguments are right, but that doesn't mean that no one can make any sound argument against me. I really think that we all collectively need to focus on actually being willing to accept that we are going to have to find ways to persuade each other if we're going to make this country work. That's what I think we really need to try to commit to do. Of course, I'm not optimistic about having that happen, but that's that's the basic. It's not that this is a post-truth world or anything like that. And by the way, this isn't the first time that we've had this problem in American or world history either. Uh, the the problem is that we we are not we've we're not focusing on persuading people who don't agree with us. 
And that's what I think we really need to focus on getting back to. So that would be a really wonderful place to end this, but I'm not going to let you go. I really would love to revisit some of our arguments from last time, but we don't have time for that. Um, But on this isolationism thing, I'm very torn about it because I think it is a useful shorthand for a general point of view. But uh, there's this other Kagan who recently had this book um, where he made a point which I largely agree with is that America's never been actually isolationist. Because this is something I've, when I do intellectual history for conservatives, I often, you often hear all the time about how the right was isolationist. And then you go back and you look and you kind of peel the onion and it turns out, well, yeah, there were right-wing isolationists, but there were a lot of left-wing isolationists too. And isolationism is more one of these cross currents. And even you almost with almost every single isolationist, you can find, well, I mean, even Pat Buchanan was like, we have to protect Croatia. <laughs> um, and, um, and lots of so-called neo-isolationists today, they're all fine with us helping Israel, right? And they don't make any of the arguments that they make against Ukraine, even though the arguments are really, it's really hard to say we should support Israel, but we shouldn't support Ukraine using the arguments that, you know, that, that, that there should be more transit of property between them. So one of my big complaints, one of my big sort of talking points for a long time has been, I don't, I, I don't mean like the tradition of realism, the going back to Thucydides and all that kind of stuff, but the realists, a lot of the people who call themselves realists, I often say that the best working definition of a realist is an ideologue who lost an argument, which is to say, it's something that they say to say, look at those ideologues, they're getting their way, look how they're screwing everything up. I'm realistic. I, I follow, I, I just go with the facts kind of thing. But they have ideological priors too. And they may be really unreasonable or really reasonable, but they, they have them. They have, an, they have some sort of vision about how foreign policy is supposed to work, about what a long-term interests of the United States are, about how to measure those interests. And they just think that the people that they don't like who won the argument are ideologues who haven't measured them correctly. And I think there's a certain element of this similar sort of parallel thing with the way we talk about isolationists is that they're basically non-interventionists that we disagree with. And, um, and there's a way, there's an invidious way the term is... It, it's a, an attempt to anathematize a, a kind of argument, right? And at the same time, I think it's a useful shorthand for you know, those arguments. I guess the, the larger question is, do you actually think that isolationism is a coherent... Because, last point, the original isolationism that people trace back to George Washington and the Farewell Address and all of that stuff, that vision was, America's so awesome, so beautiful and so pristine that we, do, we should not sully it with mud from the old European filth, right? And that, that we should stay out of that stuff and be the shining city on the hill, example to the world. A lot of this quote-unquote isolationists today have inverted that. They say, we're no better than anybody, so why should we tell anybody else what to do? Why should we get involved in that? We're suckers for having NATO and all of that. It's a very different construct for, uh, for isolationism. The old isolationism really was American exceptionalism, just with different policy conclusions. The isolationism of today is totally contrary to American exceptionalism. So I will shut up now and let you dilate on on American except or on isolationism as a historical matter and whether you think it's actually a coherent ideological framework. Look, it's a you caught me using a word loosely, and 
no, isolationism isn't a coherent <laughs> ideology any more than interventionism is. It's a spectrum. There, there is a spectrum that runs from we should never involve ourselves beyond our borders to we should involve ourselves in every single thing that occurs anywhere in the world. Virtually no one is on either extreme of that spectrum. I, there are very, very few you know, isolationists who are actually so consistent as to say that there's no circumstance under which the United States should ever involve itself anywhere in the world. Likewise, contrary to straw men that are thrown out periodically, there are virtually no interventionists or those who favor global engagement who say that we should involve ourselves in every single problem that goes on in the world. So all of this is, you know, everyone is operating on a spectrum here. When I'm saying, when I'm talking about isolationism, what I mean is those who are closer to the isolationist, the, the platonic form of isolationism than they are to the platonic form of interventionism, I don't require of them that degree of consistency to, to categorize them as isolationists. And I think that it's, it is not only possible, but normal to be generally opposed to U.S. involvement in the world, but make exceptions. I don't, I think, you know, if you, if there's a reasonable isolationist, that's what a reasonable isolate, just as a reasonable interventionist says, I think America should be generally engaged in the world, but there are things that we shouldn't do. I mean, we're both interventionists. We don't want American troops in Ukraine. Well, right? no, I don't want That's... American troops in Ukraine. And there are, you know, there are various terrible things that are going on around the world that I don't actually think that America should undertake to solve uh, for various reasons. And I have, stand, you know, I mean, I, as I'm sure you do also have priorities and criteria for deciding you know, what rises to the level of what kind of American involvement, in my judgment, isolationists are allowed to have the same you know, standards and, and criteria. So, or to have you know, parallel standards and criteria. So, so the inconsistency, I think, is not, uh, that, that, that doesn't trouble me. I would be more troubled by a, a sort of a Leninist consistency that if, if anyone had, <laughs> yeah. uh, not, not that Lenin himself was that consistent, but if, you know, he demanded consistency anyway. That would trouble me more than a kind of a judgmental, you know, a, a kind of a using judgment approach to say, well, you know, where am I exactly on that spectrum? My point simply is that I think that there are, a, I think that there are people who are fundamentally trying to make an argument the United States should not generally be engaged in the world, who are not always making that argument straight or from first principles, but are often reaching for justifications for non-interventionism in specific cases that make it harder to have the first principles argument about whether we should or, you know, what's actually going on here. Now, the same is, of course, true on, of, on the side of those who advocate engagement. There are a lot of people who have that argument on the basis of concrete, you know, sort of particular issues without being willing to get into the first principles discussion either. And I think that the, the key thing here is to say, look, if you're if you're opposing involved in, you know, supporting Ukraine because you think that America shouldn't be engaged in the world, then we need to have the first principles argument there. If you're opposing it because you think we generally should be engaged in the world, but we shouldn't be engaged in this case, that's a that's a different, you know, that's a different argument. And I think what's what's going on is that all of these arguments are being conflated, which is how I think a lot of us are kind of talking past each other. Yeah. No, I think that's a really useful way of of framing it. Um, and I can, I can definitely have that. I have friends who are against helping Ukraine who are in that camp. I think they're wrong, but they're interesting arguments, you know, I mean, but, uh, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I think all of the stuff there, there are, there, you know, none of these things, 
I, look, I think the I, I think the case of Ukraine is as clear cut a case as you as you can get. I, you know, I, I had a I don't know if I've told you this, but I had, was you know visiting a, a small island off the coast of Ireland where we like to stay and and stuff, and our very very busy uh, host who has no time to do much of anything because he's running basically running into the island, uh, but reads the newspapers and and so forth. Uh, kind of nailed it for me about Ukraine. He said, you know, what's complicated about this? Who invaded who? And so in that sense, this is the most straightforward war that you can look at. That having been said, you know, there are considerations that the Biden administration and others are, are have to deal with about what the U.S. should do and what level of involvement we should have. And, and, you know, reasonable people can come to different conclusions about that, even though this is in many respects sort of the most open and shut case that you can really have. In abstract, it's not open and shut to some people, and and what you do about it is complicated. I'm all about having those discussions. Um, to close with what the current problem on Capitol Hill is, Jonah, is that as as some uh, members of Congress said to Zelensky, this isn't about you. The the big problem that we're having right now is we're not even really having a debate about Ukraine on the subject of Ukraine aid. We're having a debate about the border, and that. I think the border is an extremely serious issue. I think that that we, you know, what's going on. Very few people think that what's going on is okay, and I think Americans need to take this on. And I'm not going to express an opinion about whether it should or should not be tied to, you know, I don't, to what the legislation should look like. We need to deal, you know, we need to deal with the border. I take it very, very seriously. That having been said, it's not okay in my judgment that that conversation has been the conversation we're having about a Ukraine aid bill. And, and that, I think, is the huge problem that we're having right now. All right, Frank Kagan, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, hopefully when I have you on back on in 2024, um, we will uh, just argue about Stalin. That would be great. I've learned how to say in Ukrainian what the, what the equivalent of inshallah is. Daiboja. So, so <laughs> daiboja, the next time we'll be able to talk more abstractly. I look forward to that. Okay, so Fred has left the uh, studio, and uh, I did not intend to close out the year, which is not, this isn't the last podcast of 2023, but it's it's up there on such a depressing note. Um, but, you know, Frigging uh, is nothing if not a man of candor and um, sober realism about how he sees the world. And so, you know, you can, if things are looking crappy about the things that he's in charge of looking at, then he's going to say so. So, you know, apologies to people who were looking for uh, uh, a more fun and upbeat conversation. But I thought it was, I, I love talking to Fred Gagan. He's one of these guys. He reminds me a lot in some ways of, of Charles Crowdhammer, who Charles had this amazing ability to think and articulate in organized paragraphs. Charles was better at it than Fred. But then again, Charles was better than any known person, any person I've ever known. Part of it, which I learned, you know, uh, from getting to know him, was that Charles hadn't typed or because of his disabilities, hadn't typed or written anything, you know, on a computer keyboard or by hand, you know, for decades. And so he had everything you ever read by Charles was first dictated. And that built up that huge muscle memory. Anyway, that's just Charles Crowdhammer trivia. Thank you all for listening. And um I think we're going to try and do an AMA this week. We're definitely going to try and do one before the end of the year. That's all I really got. So, uh, oh, but, you know, if you have, if you're hearing this in time and you're still looking for a Christmas gift of some kind um, or something to get for your entire company um, at for 2024, 
this is a great time to get a gift subscription to the dispatch or get in touch with us about, you know, uh, bulk subscriptions. And uh, it helps us, it helps you, and it helps, um, um, you know, people who you think might appreciate or benefit from all of this. That's all I got. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.